And what you just heard there was Eric getting hungry. Um, that's, that's all that was. <laughs> I want to say thank you to Steve for the opportunity, the elders for letting me up, be up here, for you all for uh, graciously not getting up and leaving right now as well. Uh, thank you for allowing me to be here. Uh, it is a tremendous privilege to be here. I'm very thankful for this congregation on a number of different levels, not least of which is in my role as someone who works with and for Rafa House. Uh, you know, we are an organization that has about 200 staff members, and they depend on congregations and individuals to put them in motion to be able to love and care for girls who have been exploited in the most horrible of ways. And you show up, and you are doing that as a congregation, some of you are doing that as individuals as well and are powerful partners in our work. And I can't thank you all enough. I, I stand in good company here and I'm very thankful for it. Uh, today, I actually just want to invite you to solve some mysteries with me. Uh, so let's just dive straight into these mysteries. First is gonna be the mystery of the tablet. This particular tablet that you're about to see on the screen, it's coming. There's a tab. The first mystery is the mystery of the disappearing tablet. Okay, and the spontaneously appearing tablet. Um, this tablet was found buried in an underground building near the Ishtar Gate. The Ishtar Gate is one of those spectacular gates that lead into the inner city of Babylon. While the lines on this particular tablet might look just like indentations or something that's random, it's actually ancient writing called cuneiform and it's in ancient Akkadian language. Now, I'm no Akkadian scholar, but I've got a transliteration of what this particular tablet says on it that I will share with you. I want you to bear with me in reading a couple of excerpts of what this tablet says. It won't make a lot of sense at first, but bear with me. It will help us solve a really cool mystery. Before I read, note that this particular tablet makes reference to a unit of measure called a scylla. One scylla was about 800 milliliters or two pints. Other parts of the tablet make clear that we're likely talking about oil that is being measured here. So this is the transliteration of this particular tablet. To Ayuakin king, 10 scylla of oil to Ayakin king, two and a half scylla to the sons of the king of Ayahudu, two and a half scylla for the five sons of the king. What we have here is a record of oil being rationed and granted to some king and his sons. This might remain a mystery if we didn't have the biblical record. There is broad agreement among archaeologists and historians that this refers to someone whom we learn about from Jeremiah. In fact, there's really no scholarly dispute about that whatsoever. This is a resolved matter for purposes of archaeology and archaeologists and the historical record. So let's jump to Jeremiah 52. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. In Jeremiah 52, we read about a tragedy that befalls Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. Why this tragedy befalls Judah may itself be regarded as a mystery by some, but not by those who pay attention to what God has to say about why the kingdom of Judah falls. God himself will help us solve this mystery which we might style as the mystery of the fall of Judah. Judah was what was left of the people of God. God took a people that nobody wanted, a people that others used and abused, a people that others neglected and discarded, a people that were enslaved and subjugated, and made those people 
God's people. Isn't it funny the way that God does business? Isn't it funny that this is the people that he would exalt to being his own? God called them out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt, and gave them a new land, which we call the promised land. They were called by God into that land in hopes that they would be unlike the people around them and the people that they had already experienced. They were called that they might be a just people in this new land, a holy people in this new land. They were called to be a people who remembered what it was like to have been slaves and who were denied rights, opportunities, food, hope, and a future. And they were to make sure that no one in their midst, in this new promised land, was ever to be treated that way again. That was their gifting and that was their calling by God as well. So why does this tragedy befall them then? It's a beautiful beginning to the story. Why this ending? Why a tragic ending? The mystery of the fall of Judah is really no mystery at all. Judah fell to God's judgment because rather than doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God, they forsook the call of God and they became lazy, indulgent, selfish, self-absorbed, and forgetful of all that God had given them, telling themselves that they'd won their blessings by their own strength, telling themselves that what they'd been given was for their own pleasures. And God is not mocked. And Jeremiah 52 testifies to this. It is a terrifying epitaph of the thoroughness of God's judgment. And we're not talking about God's judgment against the world. We're talking about God's judgment against those who call themselves his people. Doesn't Paul tell us this? Judgment starts with the house of God. It does here too. I'm going to post all of Jeremiah 52 up on the screen for you to read as I go, uh, but I'm going to read the highlighted portions to bring it home. Uh, so the, the tech folks are going to make sure that you get to see the whole passage, but we're going to read through some of it really quickly. So if it seems weird, blame me. They're just doing what I asked them to do. Um, but read Jeremiah 52 either as it pops up on here or in your own free time. It's a great chapter, although it is a horrible chapter all at the same time. Let's go ahead and start with verse 1. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord like all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out from his presence. He cast his own people out from his presence. Why? Why would he do this? Going ahead a few verses to verse 8. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and they passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also slaughtered all the princes of Judah and Riblah. Then he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah. And the king of Babylon bound him with bronze fetters and brought him into Babylon and put him into prison until the day of his death. Maybe you've seen some of those, either usually cop movies or gangster movies, TV series, where one of the bad guys says to somebody, Look at me! Look at me! This is really what is happening right now. 
to Zedekiah at the hands of the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon is saying, you will not close your eyes while I put to death your sons. You will watch, and it will be the last thing that you see. Brutal. So brutal. There is really no space in this chapter to catch your breath. The next verses detail the pillaging and destruction of the temple and all the items used to worship God inside of it. Jumping ahead to verse 17. The bronze pillars which belonged to the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea which were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the basins, the pans, and all the bronze vessels which were used in the temple service. The captain of the guard also took away the bowls, the fire pans, the basins, the pots, the lampstands, the pans, the drink offering bowls, what was fine gold and what was fine silver. They took everything. Took everything that was once used to worship God. And I think this is likely an expression of both God's justice and his mercy. God took these objects away, which had come to be used only for the form of worship, rather than the substance of it. In continuing to use them without there being justice and mercy in their land and in their lives, especially towards the most vulnerable, God's people were condemning themselves only more and more completely every time they'd use this stuff, which they had functionally rendered to junk. In God's justice and mercy, God spares them any further hypocrisy and self-condemnation. No more. God had warned them about that false worship, the uselessness, the vanity of it, and he says no more. He told them no more. He gave them the chance at them choosing no more. When they failed to choose it, he said no more and took it all away. Going ahead to verse 24, we see the leaders now of that dead worship. It's not just the stuff. It's the guys who led in it. The leaders of that dead worship and the leaders of that dead country led away to their own deaths, followed by an epitaph of judgment for all the people carried away from the promised land to a land more befitting of a people of idolatry and injustice, the Babylon. Maybe it, maybe it isn't really an irony that the people of God were taken away to Babylon for all the idolatry and injustice that they walked in in their own lives and in their own land. Their exile really was to take them to a place that fit that better than the promised land. Verse 24. Then the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, with the three officers of the temple. He also took from the city one official who was overseer of the men of war, and seven of the king's advisors who were found in the city, and the scribe of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. You've already read that phrase before. You know what's coming next. Then the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And then we're given what is the final word. Really, though, it is almost the final word. So Judah was led away into exile from its land. Everything that you get to read, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, through all the books of history had been intended by God 
to raise up a merciful and just people driven by a merciful and just God to do mercy and justice in their lives and in their land. And it was a powerful story and it was, you know, there are grace notes and there are beautiful moments all through that story. There's Saul and there's David and there's Jonathan and there's Samuel and there's Solomon and there's highs and lows all across all of these stories. There's Deborah. But this is the horrible, terrible final word. So Judah was led away into exile from its land. If you were a human author, you would likely counsel well. This is a good place to end it. This is the bookend. This is where it makes sense to stop the story. God is not a human author. I want to go back for just a second to the mystery of the tablet. And I want to remind you of what it sounds like. And I want you to listen. I want you to listen, bearing in mind this is a transliteration. This is an attempt by Babylonians to render some things in a different language that isn't their own, that they don't really have Babylonian names or words for. So they're making sounds that sound a little weird. But I want you to see if you can pick up on the sounds. To Ayukin, king, ten silla of oil. To Ayukin, king, two and a half silla. To the sons of the king of Ayahudu, two and a half silla for the five sons of the king. Let's solve the mystery. Mercifully, and I mean mercifully, in the truest and deepest sense of the word. So Judah was led away into exile from its land is not actually the final word. Verse 31, let's solve this mystery. Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, showed favor to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. Then he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes, and he had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. For his allowance, a regular allowance, was given him by the king of Babylon, a daily portion all the days of life until the day of his death. Can you hear it now? Can you hear the sound of likes? Can you hear those words? To Ayukin, king. Ten silla of oil to Ayukin, king. Two and a half silla to the sons of Ayahudu. <laughs> Two and a half silla for the five sons of the king. Ayukin is Jehoiakin. Food and rations for him and his sons. The king of Ayahudu, Judah. This was Babylon's best effort at trying to get those sounds, those Hebrew sounds, right. This is the same Jehoiakim who was the son of the wicked king Jehoiakim. The Jehoiakim who, when confronted by Jeremiah, took what Jeremiah had written, slashed it to pieces, and burned it in an act of defiance against God and what God was calling him to. This is the same Jehoiakim whose reign was short, but not short enough that it would be noted as anything other than evil. 2 Kings 24, 8, and 9 reads this way. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. Three months! 
That is all it took for God's judgment to rain down on him through Nebuchadnezzar, who took him into exile. Three months. That's all it took for his rule to be recognized as evil. He is part of the judgment that God rained on Judah. He's part of the reason for that judgment. Jeremiah has this rich legacy of faithfulness from which we still reap an inheritance. Great King Josiah, we reap an inheritance to this day from his legacy of faithfulness. Good King Hezekiah, we hope to stand in fellowship with faithful men like these, but not with Jehoiakim. Get these three guys over here, let me stand with them. I don't want to be anywhere near that guy. Not on the Day of Judgment. And yet we're blessed with this next mystery if we think about it long and deep and hard enough, especially as we're confronted with the mystery of the tablet, which we're basically solving right now. What's really mysterious about this, it's known in archaeological circles as Jehoiakim's rations tablets. So unambiguous is what it is tied to. The mystery is not who it is talking about. There's no meaningful scholarly disagreement about who is the subject. It's deposed, exiled King Jehoiakim, who we learn about in Jeremiah and 2 Kings. They actually needed the word to understand what they had found better. Works that way a lot. There's no disagreement about what is going on here as far as they testify. They describe rations that were provided to the king and his sons by a king of Babylon while Jehoiakim and his sons were exiled in Babylon. No mystery there. The most mysterious thing that remains about all of this is this. Given who Jehoiakim was... Given what he did, and given what he turned a blind eye to, given what he valued and what he didn't value, given how he seemed to continue on with the selfish, narcissistic, unjust priorities and principles of his father Jehoiakim, given his apparent unwillingness to embrace the zealous, loving, just principles of his grandfather Josiah, God is still kind and generous to him even unto his death. We learn elsewhere in Scripture that God sends his reign on both the righteous and the wicked. The mystery that we have here is the mystery of God's love and God's grace. It is bewildering. This tablet is testimony to the bewildering mystery of the love and grace of God. The great mystery that it leaves us with is the love and grace of God towards those who reject him. There is a related mystery to that, and it's a mystery that only you can solve. I can't solve it for you. I can't show you the evidence. Only you can produce it. How are you going to respond to the love and grace of God? Are you just soaking it in, receiving it, and living off of it, but not being a vessel for it? Will that be your testimony? Will you share in Jehoiakim's testimony where you squander the opportunity that God gives you to be an agent of his love and truth and grace and deliverance and instead value other things? Or, by contrast, will you have the testimony that God intended for his people, that you remembered the horror of your own slavery and the glory of God's deliverance from it, and that you in turn became an agent of his deliverance from oppression, hopelessness, fear, and slavery. I encourage you to solve the mystery of your response to God's grace today. God will be gracious. I want to assure you that. God will be gracious. It is his nature to be gracious. 
Sometimes he's gracious by taking away objects of worship and taking you away from a place where you engage only in more self-crimination, hypocrisy, and indulgence. But he will be gracious. You can reject God and God will be gracious to you. He'll surround you with as much love and provision as you and those around you will allow because love is his nature. It is his identity. It is his desire for those that he has created. If you reject him at the end of your life, the testimony that will remain will be that God was kind, generous, loving, and gracious to you, just as he was to Jehoiakim. This tablet is beautiful testimony to that. But that'll be all that's left of your testimony, and it will really be testimony to God's love and kindness. There will be nothing that can be said affirmatively about you in that. God wants you to have a testimony. You don't have to be a byword like Jehoiakim. You don't have to be a part of the cosmic mystery where all of creation cries out, why didn't he or she respond to the love and grace of God? You can have a testimony too. You can have a legacy. You can receive the love and grace of God and you can be a vessel for it just as God breathed life into us to be. You can be the hands and feet of Jesus an expression of his heart in the here and now that you might be alive, really, genuinely, truly alive, because then you are living life in the living, creative God who finds creative ways of expressing that love, grace, and truth in as many ways as he possibly can. That's living, not just breathing. Remember that you were a slave to Pharaoh in Egypt and that without God's deliverance, you would have nothing and be forgotten. Remember that you were a slave to sin, but that his love and power are freeing you from sin and its power. Remember that he calls you to be a vessel of his love and mercy as one who has received it. Pour it out on your spouse, on your children, on your parents, on your grandparents, on your grandchildren, on your co-workers, on the person who walks into this building who makes it as difficult as possible even to speak to them. Pour it out on the server at the restaurant that you dine at. Pour it out on the people at the garage where they work on your car. Pour it out on the bagger and the person who checks you out at Aldi, Winn-Dixie, Publix. Solve the most important mystery that you have to solve here today, and only you can solve it. Respond to God's grace as one who was unworthy to receive it in the first place made worthy solely by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus. Be the beggar who found the bread, who can't for joy restrain himself from telling others where the bread is. May that be your legacy. May that be your testimony to the mighty working of Jesus in your life. Pray with me, please. God, you are so gracious. You are an amazing creator. You are an amazing redeemer, saturating all of creation, all of the cosmos with your creative power and your redeeming power, washing everything with grace and truth and hope and life everywhere that you go. Help us to catch up with you, please. Help us to ride along with your adventure, with your life. 
Help us to abide in you that we might be truly alive, vessels of your love and grace and mercy in this world. For you have given it to us in infinite measure. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.